Berry. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Slack Capital. We're a commercial mortgage banking firm located here in California. And then uh, we have, well, I'll have the other panelists introduce themselves and what their role is and how technology impacts what, you're, what we're going to talk about. I'm Mark Pryor. I'm the founder and chairman of Qualtic. Uh, we're a fintech SaaS based on the West Coast. We primarily focus on delivering risk profile and risk management for CRE portfolios to all sorts of lenders, primarily banks. Uh, and I guess uh, I said it in what I opened with, FinTech SaaS. That's how technology definitely impacts us. Uh, John Vecchioni, I work for CoStar Group. Uh, we're a provider of data and analytics to the CRE industry. Um, I am responsible for our CoStar Risk Analytics uh, division, which works with lenders. We're basically the division that provides all the solutions for lenders and fixed income investors. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Butler. I'm the CEO for Godox. Um, for those of you who don't know, we're, we have a platform for automated document generation for commercial closing documents. Uh, we do closing documents for all manner of commercial loans in all 50 states. Um, and I think the, the big initiatives that I'm really focused on as a company is to really take document generation to the full spectrum of loans, you know, so that um, you turn a much lower cost to borrowers and you, and you really cut the time for closing to borrowers. So, so that's kind of what I'm focused on, we're focused on as a company. My name is Mark Rutson. I'm the Chief Product Officer at Walker and Dunlop. Uh, so I, I lead the data science product owner, data science team, the product owners, and the customer success team in the development of our internal platforms. Uh, and I manage the product roadmap. Uh, and one thing that's that's kind of interesting, I, I've gotten to sit on the other side because my company, I, I started a predictive analytics company that was acquired by Walker and Dunlop. And so I got to be the one selling at one point and now I'm the one that's sold too. Thank you. Uh, before we sort of get started into the questions, we're gonna sort of cover three or four primary topics. One is we're gonna talk about uh, data standards. Then um, we're gonna talk a little bit about SaaS and how that impacts our, our organizations. Uh, the adoption of technology and then uh, technology and the borrower experience. Um, in prepping for this panel, uh, I've spoken on a couple other technology, commercial real estate panels, and I thought I'd maybe try to set the stage, sort of go and look back, and I, I realized in 2004, uh, I uh, moderated a panel at Realcom to talk about the same topic, and we're, we've made a lot of progress, but you can see there's a lot of the uh, issues still face that we're faced with today still apply with you know silos of data in our firms uh, and then you know the obstacles to standards because this is a complicated business commercial real estate and we have regional differences product type differences from you know office to multifamily um, geographies uh, and you know that, that has uh, made the adoption more difficult which we'll get into and then uh, circa uh, about nine years ago I, I uh, uh, talk to internally about uh, adopting an e-client pro uh, process that we we're working through. The same thing is that this is nine years ago, you know, highly complex data needs, uh, and then, you know, going in, and what I like to see is it's great is when we talk about is, hey, what has actually progressed from, you know, our legacy systems to, you know, we now have smaller deployments, trying to be more nimble, um, you know, PC-based applications to moving towards SaaS, we'll get into that, and the web, um, you know, centralized command and control to sort of 
the end user driving the experiences, uh, you know, old uniform ERP type systems to really more specialist, best of breed HR, finance, or, you know, uh, CRM type applications, uh, you know, centralized reporting to the rise of big data and data scientists. Uh, and so, you know, we've progressed a lot from nine years. So really, I wanna talk about these four topics if we can, and maybe we'll start with, uh, you know, data standards and the collection of this data, and maybe to the, to the group, um, you know, how much of this problem is the fact that, you know, most of the data is either in, uh, you know, email or, you know, our, our standard of Excel program. Um, do you want to? Yeah, sure, I'll start. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a big issue with the data being housed in Excel. You know, it, it's not, it served us well for a lot of years, of course, but uh, it's hard to integrate to. You've got to have a lot of expertise to manage it and know where things are. It's hard to maintain it. And so it, it becomes a bottleneck in any kind of, um, uh, you know, digital workflow that a lender might want to create. And, and if, you look at, if you look at other aspects of, of, of the lending process, it used to be the way we, we serviced loans out of Excel spreadsheets. That's all gone. And that was, you know, we have companies like Fiserv and Jack Henry and so forth that are now doing that. So it sits as a system of record for a lot of lenders, and I think it's a bit of a bottleneck at this point. I would, I would strongly second that and even further that a lot of what goes on in the front end underwriting or back end process for modeling and understanding what is actually going on in either portfolio or loan level is Excel driven. And there are many risks around it, not the least of which is the person that built it leaves and you lose this institutional knowledge because Excel is hard to replicate. It's hard to, it's hard to uh, utilize in a way other than the person who created it built it for. Uh, so the movement away from Excel is probably going to accelerate over the next few years as better and better technology hits the marketplace to replace it. That said, it's still a pretty highly used tool in the industry. John, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I agree. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, Excel is a great tool. It's just misused. This isn't what it was supposed to be for. It's a, it's a calculator that's supposed to visualize data. But because people don't have the right systems in place, they end up falling back on Excel. And all of a sudden you're doing modeling, advanced modeling. It's using, you know, as almost like a database over time. Uh, and it becomes very difficult to get that information up and out into a proper system uh, going forward. We work with, with hundreds of lenders and they all have this problem. The larger institutions are doing a better job of sort of taking all that information and collecting it and getting it into uh, you know, one single place to be able to do all of the analysis. But as you go down the stack into the smaller institutions, uh, they really struggle with getting up and out of, uh, the, out of Excel. So you know, I, I talked to an underwriter the other day and he said that he's still doing 50% of his job is manual, putting that information into these spreadsheets or flipping through appraisal docs and entering that into, uh, into Excel. And it's just the most inefficient process that they have. So um, I think that you know, these, these companies really need to invest a little bit more uh, and put all that information into one single uh, system where they can access it out of a data warehouse. Well, maybe this is a great question for Mark. Um, Mark, how does Walker Dunlop approach the data collection and aggregation in its business, and you know how has it approached the data, the lack of standardizations, and looking at the technology solutions? Yeah, we've kind of uh, so it's been talked about for so long that standardization is needed, 
but it's been decades and it hasn't happened. And we can't really base our strategy on the hope that at some point everyone's gonna get on the same uh, bus and <laughs> all do it the same way, right? Uh, so we have built tools, uh, algorithms with our data science team that actually take the different charts of accounts, for example, across like all the operating statements we'd get. Uh, and no matter how many line items or few line items or what they call them, the AI can read that and translate it into the way Fannie, Freddie, or HUD want to see that data, right? So it's, it's a translation between charts of accounts. We did the same for rent rolls, right? Any rent roll format can be uploaded and digitized in just a, a few minutes versus, you know, if, if anyone's had the, the experience of uh, translating a rent roll that they get in a PDF to Excel, it's not the most enjoyable thing. And uh, you, you all should have done that at some point. Um, and the other, the other part is, um, you know, Excel, I kind of feel is here to stay. Um, it, people have talked about getting rid of Excel for as long as they've talked about data standardization in real estate. And it doesn't seem like people are really transitioning off of it, or it's gonna take a very long time at least. So what we did is we made add-ins to push and pull data from Excel uh, so that data that uh, we have in our, our data warehouse or our data science team produces can be injected into Excel right where they're doing their underwriting. And then when the underwriting is uh, complete, every time it's saved, it goes back up to the cloud. Now this is useful in a lot of ways. One is, uh, of course, that we capture all the data in all the Excel models. Uh, it's not just sitting in a silo. But if you think about it, as we've moved more and more data and business logic up into the cloud, now if someone takes one of the models and they leave, they don't actually get anything. It doesn't work without that data being injected into it. The equations themselves are starting to be shifted into the cloud. So uh, it, it, as from a security perspective and a data availability perspective, uh, we, we've just worked around Excel and, and built integrations with it so we don't lose that data. What's well, also the t tool that humans can get used to is seeing data, you know, if I, if you were, sending an XML feed to a lender, they would not know what to do with it. But if you sent the Excel file with the data that has the underwriting, they, they know what to do with it. So sort of interesting there. Um, maybe John on, on, from CoStar is that, you know, CoStar has a robust data set uh, for the industry and, uh, you know, access through this powerful uh, search and reporting interface and, um, how does CoStar look to solve their, the, the customer's needs through their, their, that, your lens? Sure, you mean outside of that? Yeah, just in the data realm, because there's a, what I find fascinating is you have this, you know, CoStar that has this great data set that stays in the system, but you, you the lending sources, you're, you're opening up, you know, at, uh, individual's data into this robust platform. Right. So, yeah, historically, we've had that, that platform on, you know, CoStar.com. You come in and you can access all of our information. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, we spent a little over $3 billion on our uh, research operation gathering CRE data on 7 million properties at this point. Uh, but you usually would access it through that same user interface. Uh, but right now, we have so many different companies and businesses that we've acquired, and we have such a diverse client base uh, that we've had to take a different approach to sort of solving everybody's needs. I went into a, a life code the other day, and I've known him for a long time, and the guy looked at me and said, 
he saw he saw some of our new systems as were sort of outside the system. He said, uh, he said, I want to retire really badly. Like, I really want to retire. I'm like, okay. He's like, I need you to use this to automate me out of a job right now. So that you know, that was an interesting ask, right? So we were able to take the data, use it as direct feeds in, and automate a lot of the processes uh, that he was doing, and we were actually able to automate his entire job out of that, right? So, you know, that's one way that we've approached this. Uh, but again, we get into the larger institutions that are able to take these big data feeds from us and integrate them into their risk platforms because they have the resources. When you start to get outside of that top, say, 30 or so institutions, it gets a lot more difficult. Um, I was on a panel at the FDIC and we had somebody ask me, uh, you know, a lot of the, the larger institutions are able to invest the resources in this, but you know, a lot of the CRE sits in the smaller institutions and we can't compete against them because we can't automate these things. So what we've done is we've developed new systems where you know, sort of a SaaS system, maybe a hybrid, if you will, uh, where they, we take on a lot of the, the data work for them, a lot of the, the mapping of the information, uh, a lot of the data modeling for them where they can just upload their portfolio and then they're able to pull all the data down in bulk. Uh, so they don't necessarily have to do all the work that a large institution would do. So just a couple of ways that we're approaching it differently than, than we used to. Thank you for that. Um, maybe this is for Stephen and, and Mark on from the vendor perspective is that, you know, um, given the lack of standards, um, you know, as a vendor to the industry, how have you moved forward with solutions, you know, given the, the lack of standards? Yeah, it's uh, it's a challenge. It makes it a lot a lot more challenging. So the the uh, there are some standards, um, you know, in in, in mortgage, uh, you've got standards like MISMO, for example, which is a uh, a data standard for um, for for mortgage and and, uh, and and the genealogy and so forth in mortgage. But and you've got other other ones. But the real answer to that is to use an API. Um, that, uh, that you put forward, that you make it easy to use, and you use that to integrate to other platforms. And many of the key platforms, certainly all the core banking platforms today have, have an API type interface as well. So, so the exchange of data um, through that mechanism is, is sort of how we, how we basically integrate stage by stage uh, for, for a digital type process. Yeah, I would, I would second a lot of that. One of the things we've found is uh, APIs, the, the cores have gotten much better at data access, being able to pull information into, your, into whatever system you're trying to analyze. But if you get down market, you past mid-sized financial institutions, APIs scare them. And you almost always have to go CSV in that. So we still find we're going back to, you know, back to semi-Excel uh, with it. But guiding them through that process, making sure that... Uh, they understand that the data is actually there. Oftentimes they won't even realize they have access to their own information has been the biggest challenge we find when in implementing with customers from a vendor perspective. Yeah, and I think that's true in our industry because you know, if you take the top players, there's so much market fractalization. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a lender, you, you could be the largest commercial lender in the in the country and you're still your market share is is tiny and there's just so many different players that don't have you know, if you talk about APIs, they don't even have, like in our company, I, I couldn't handle that. You're, you know, is so, but what's interesting, and I think what has changed is, and we'll get to this when we talk about SaaS here next, is that um, more and more companies are leveraging, you know, different technology. They're not, it's not in-house anymore. I mean, the, the, 
the idea that you build your own ERP in-house and, and do that and have programmers, it's really gone away. So most of the industry are using you know, third parties for various systems, vendors, and those vendors can handle APIs with other vendors and bring data in. So I think that's gonna help move the adoption forward. So, I mean, that sort of segues into the next you know, topic, which is you know, software as a service and SaaS. Um, and I guess maybe Steven, start with you as a uh, basic question. Wh what is software as a service? And why do tech providers you know, view these solutions as superior to on-premise software? Yeah, so as most of you probably know, I mean, software as a service is basically the software that you wanna use delivered from the cloud, licensed and delivered from the, from the cloud. And so that nothing is really installed in your, in your data center. Uh, you're basically, um, you, you're turned on, you've, you've got privileges to use it. You, 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 you log in and you start using it. And it leads to some really interesting um, uh, you know, benefits. One is you're not managing the software in your data center, which you know, the software today is constantly updated for security reasons, for feature reasons, and so forth. And so if it's in your data center, someone on your team has to be doing that. And uh, on-premise, which is the definition of software in your, in your own data center, um, has got a long history of long downtimes because you're taking it down to update, do a major update. And the software as a service model, it's the provider, the supplier. Uh, in, in our case, Godox, for example, is a, is a full SaaS provider. We manage the, the whole uptime and, and uh, maintenance of it. It's all done in the cloud. We worry about that. You just worry about using the software. And it leads to two, I think, really key things. One is the, the fact that it's, it's just always available to you. You can use it 24-7. But the other, the other big benefit is the types of uh, usage models you can get from this. You can get a pay-per-use model. For example, a utility model. You just, you know, you pay for what you use, sort of like electricity. And uh, that lends itself nice to lenders because you're very transaction-oriented and, and you're paying for your your software as a transaction. Or you can have subscriptions, which is another way where you're basically committing to some upfront. So I think it's so much more flexible um, in addition to uh, into the benefits of not being in your data center. And don't worry about security anymore. It used to be that you know, you move to the cloud and you, you get data privacy and all that. I would tell you that I think today the clouds, Amazon, Azure, Google, are more secure than your data center. Remember, they're getting hammered by you know, by hacking attempts and, you know, there's thousands and millions of transactions going through those, they're going to be as hardened as you can get. And so I think you can trust your data uh, in, in the cloud today much more than you could, say, five or ten years ago. Uh, Mr. Pryor, so do lenders and service providers fear using SaaS solutions? It kind of dovetails, dovetails what Stephen was talking about, is that, 10 years ago, you couldn't get a commercial lender to talk about anything but on-prem. Uh, Cloud-based technologies scared them. Uh, the, the big shift has been several things. One is the availability of very cheap computing power and storing. AWS is building far better things than someone can build internally from a uh, process standpoint or from a security standpoint. Uh, and the second big thing is that the generation of people coming into financial services and banking, you, you, know, you were aging out pretty rapidly, people who were slow adopters into technology. You really, did, really wouldn't embrace, you had 10 years ago, green screens and uh, they wouldn't have their email anywhere but on-site uh, with on-site servers. 
that has changed so significantly really in the last five years is where even the smallest institutions, you get a $250 million bank uh, that is driven primarily into, uh, into a SaaS world. And, and it is in an amazing change in five years what's happened. Yeah, I would agree. And it actually helps the adoption here because if most, if we all are using SaaS solutions, then having those systems talk to each other as opposed to interfacing through humans helps uh, with some of the challenges on the data standards. Um, uh, John, uh, I guess this is interesting. Is, is CoStar a SaaS company? And then uh, can you look at CoStar and separate the data from its software used to deliver the data insights? Sure, well, building on what you just said about slow to adopt, I mean, I've, I've been there for about 15 years and we had a, a credit default model was our core business for a long time or my, for our business. And uh, it's a desktop, I remember sending it out on CDs and putting labels on it every quarter and mailing it out. Um, but we now have a SaaS version, we have API versions of it, but there's still a lot of institutions that just don't want to give up that, that desktop. Um, so we're slowly trying to get them out there. You know, you talk to them, they're like, well, we have to go through 20 committees to get approval for this and that. So uh, there is still a little bit of a barrier there, but um, is CoStar a SaaS company? I would say yes, predominantly, but again, we have so many different brands with so many different types of products. Uh, again, you know, we still manage our desktop, you know, we have STR that still has their star reporting. And, uh, but I think at the core, uh, we're SaaS. And can we split it out? Um, so the latest, system that we released uh, for lenders, I said it allows you to upload your portfolio in, uh, you can actually pull it all down, uh, all of your data, property level data, market level data, forecasting, modeling, uh, it can all be pulled down into CSVs, we're working on APIs to pull it out of there. So um, we're sort of, you know, case by case, client by client type, um, we're I think more willing to open up what data is coming out of the system. Uh, now, so there is some separation of it, but we still try to run things through our, our core because we, I think we believe so, so much in what we built there. Yeah, I would say that I come from the brokerage world, so used CoStar back in the, in the late 90s and, um, you know, back when they first started delivering, it was on a CD-ROM and they would update the software and then when they moved to a web, it really changed the nature of, uh, as much as in management work, we actually didn't like the fact that our brokers were using CoStar, but it made it so easy for the end users to use that. We're going to the web model, and so it really increases that adoption versus having you know physically installed. Like you know, at our company, we had our own you know uh, research system that they had to have updates. It was just honestly much harder to use. So what did the brokers use? They used CoStar. Um, so uh, let's see, um, Mark. I, regarding from Walker Dunlop's perspective. You know, this is sort of interesting. You, you talked about where you were at a company that was acquired. So when we're looking at, you know, technologies, um, you know, the, the larger companies can look at three, you know, do they build it internally? Do they buy a solution um, or, it, or do they acquire it? Because, you know, Walker Dunlop's bought a bunch of tech companies and so has some of the larger. So love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, so... Um we uh, we prefer to go SaaS uh, with our products, right? We don't want to build things internally if we don't have to. If there's a really good product out there for something that we've identified a need for, we're always talking with our users, we're always surveying them, seeing what they need, and we, we kind of treat them 
like an external user, actually, uh, like, like they're a client of ours. And, and we interact with them, and as we're surveying these needs, we, we see patterns in that, and we see, hey, everyone's asking for something that's kind of along these lines. Then we go into the, the market and we look at products that could suit that need, and it, it comes down to an ROI calculation. Are we, if we get this product that uh, is, is a SaaS tool and we, we subscribe to it, are, what is the benefit we're gonna get in terms of either additional business or time savings or client experience being improved? Um, and if we truly think that there's a competitive differentiation that can be achieved if we build it ourselves or acquire a company that we think is alone in the market or one of few com competitors, uh, that competitive differentiation may be uh, enough to get us to you know, acquire a company or, or try to build it ourselves. But the preference is always to, to subscribe to something that already exists and already works. We just have to make sure that it passes our InfoSec review, the, the IP attorneys review the contracts and there's nothing that puts our data at risk. Uh, and if we can check all the boxes and it suits uh, a real need, then uh, we, we typically go with the SaaS model. Great, thank you. Um, why don't we pivot to talk about the adoption uh, question is, you know, how do we prevent, you know, companies, if you buy software or solutions from becoming shelfware? And um, I guess a question to the group, maybe just maybe start with you, Mark, is that, um, you know, how are firms training and rolling out new, you know, solutions to make sure they're successful and get adopted by the internal users? Yeah, that's a, that's a critical function. I mean, like you said, becoming shelfware is fairly easy, and, and at least for us, a big part of the sales cycle is that onboarding and making sure you've gotten people utilized, not falling back into the Excel habit, not falling back into the ways they did it before. And, and for us, it's, it's paying at least as much attention to how we're developing training and how we're implementing training upon, uh, upon uh, implementing with the client itself. It's a constant process, and uh, you know, we're finding three to four months in, you've changed habits, and they're utilizing what you're doing versus falling back to the older habits. Uh, but it is, it is a challenge, particularly, and we already talked about this, you're not in an early adopter industry. Typically, finance is very slow to adopt anything new, uh, and you'll often have champions within an organization that have signed up for what you're doing and you'll have people that feel threatened by it and it may they may feel it eliminates search to go back to the I forget which one you said it but the guy that wanted to be retired by implementing uh, what you had there I think it was you that uh, uh, you have people that also fear for their jobs sometimes so you have to sell around that but it is really important to con constantly show benefit and constantly show at least ease of use to leadership within a company John what do you what do you think about that yeah, to follow up on that, there was somebody else in the room that yelled, uh, you better not automate me out of a job. Yeah. Um, so adoption is so critical uh, for us. I mean, we have, we have a lot of salespeople, we have a lot of clients, and um, especially where we're selling into the financial institutions, lending institutions, CMBS investors, we have to make sure that we get in touch with every single stakeholder within the organization. We can't, it can't be a quick, you know, transactional sale. Uh, by any means, you have to get buy-in across the board, show everybody how, um, what the benefit is to them, you know, hopefully they, they want that. Um, and then once you do that, we have some pretty sophisticated models that we're, set, we're uh, selling in. 
uh, for credit default, for stress testing, for CECL and things like that. We have to bring in you know, our, our quants and things like that to sit down with theirs and start to go through very, very detailed through the models, make sure they understand every last bit of how it works. Then we also have tons of um, documentation that we've prepared for it, uh, both on models, model validations, third-party model validations. Security is becoming, especially once we go into SaaS, uh, becoming, in, becoming a, a big deal. So we have all of our SOC compliances, both for our models and then also for being able to manage data in there. So it's really you know, making sure that you're getting in there, talking to everybody, everybody's buying in before you actually uh, put a proposal in front of them uh, and making sure they have all the proper documentation. So um, Stephen, from a vendor's perspective on this, um, how do you face the deal with you know, the situation with adoption uh, by your customers and you know, what's working and what's not? Yeah, you know, I probably have 50 apps on my phone I never touch, right? I never open them. Uh, I, I don't know why I still have them. And in and, and thinking about it, it's really because they're not in my personal or business workflow, right? They're just not there for me to, to deal with. So um, what I've learned over the years is that if you really want great adoption, you've got to start long before the sale has been closed. And a very consultative sort of going along the lines of what, what, what you said is, you know, in a very consultative sale, and you're basically getting yourself designed into the workflows of the business. And if you do that um, and, and get all the stakeholders, in our case, we deal with the closing departments of lenders, and so we want to make sure the closers are on board. Because I know one thing, if the day that it's turned on, if we send an email and said, by the way, Godox is now available to you, it'll never get used. But if they're planning for it and prepared for it and it's part of it, it'll get used in a great way. So I, I think it starts long before and you've got to get designed into the workflows. Thank you, Mark. I saw you chuckling over there when you heard that. So I guess from your from the customer's perspective, you know, how do you deal with adoption, you know, at Walker Dunlop, and uh, what do you do to rely on the vendor for, you know, sort of training and adoption, and what's working and what's not? Yeah. So uh, I think we handle it differently from a lot of different groups. So we have our, our internal customer success team, which is actually like 10 people. And uh, they will basically work with all the different groups to ensure that not only are we scoping things right, so say we build an internal platform, we're going uh, to all these groups and figuring out what their needs are, figuring out how it does integrate into their workflows if, if we're building it or buying it. And then we're working with them to derive that, that scope. Once it's actually like built, we're, we have all the content teed up. So we have drip campaigns that will educate our users on each different uh, component of the software. So it will explain how to use this component, how to use that, how this uh, particular data transformation works, whatever it may be, uh, that those will come in uh, bite-sized emails that people can read and understand how to use the feature and they can click and go into a deeper knowledge article if they want to learn more. Uh, then we'll do the, the, the demo uh, and rollout kind of um, strategy that, that we found successful. So we, we demo once for the whole group and this could be like 200 people in our capital markets group. Um, and in that presentation, it's more like sales and you're, you're talking about the benefits of the thing and how it's gonna improve their life. No one's gonna retain uh, very much of anything from that initial demo. But then we break out into separate group demos with each of the, the subgroups within that department 
demo with them and there it's a more intimate setting where they can ask questions and say like, oh, I don't get this. How does that work? Dig into it. And then we watch people's adoption of the platforms afterward, after we do those group demos and we see who's using it, who's not. And for the ones using it, we say, oh, how are you liking it? You know, what, what do you think we can do better? And to the ones who are not using it, we, we try to figure out why they haven't. And we report on the numbers to the department so that the department can say, hey, you guys, I know you haven't logged in and usually it's like they, they got busy with something, they haven't had the chance to try it out. But from the initial scoping of it through the training, the demos and the tracking of, of usage, we very much view it as our responsibility. Again, whether it's an internally developed product or it's a, a vendor uh, providing it, we paid for that, we have to get the adoption or it's, it's gonna become shelfware. Yeah, I mean, it does take, you know, when, anytime you, and I make this mistake all the time, is that when you look at a solution that looks great and then you're just like, the easiest thing is to buy it, but to underinvest in the adoption and implementation. And I think, um, you know, too many firms you know, uh, make the mistake of not realizing the, the cost of that and the, and the effort internally. And we're a small company of about, you know, 60 people. So I, I don't have, you know, internal resources like you at Walker Dunlop, but it's all, it's all in the same. Every company has the same challenges in that, you know, uh, we're at the point now where, you know, with COVID, you know, we've even outsourced our IT department. So the break fix stuff, but having a person internally who, knows how to utilize the technology to sit with the various stakeholders, if it's the production team, you know, how to use, you know, a CRM or a database to make their jobs easier. Some of it's one-on-one -on -one training, I think you've talked about, or videos. I also see it's a generational thing. I mean, I, I have four kids and I, I never had to teach them how to use an iPhone. I mean, they were figuring out at five. So the, you know, but they want to have the self-service tools, you know, looking at videos and, and, and providing those resources. So, you know, I think it's, that's one of the things that internally just make sure that whatever solution you choose, that you put the appropriate resources in internally to train people and educate them on, you know, how to leverage the, the, the tool. Yeah, let me just add too, you may not realize, but today's senior managers at vendors are measured on customer retention. It's not just about revenue and, you know, growth. But for example, myself, uh, I mean, if I add two customers and lose one, I'm not doing my job. So, so it really is retention, customer satisfaction is a key part of the measurement that board of directors have today on, on software suppliers. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point is that it's not just, you have to have the resources to that customer success, follow through, um, you know, maybe John, maybe address this at CoStar. One of the things that I, I think on their core product, they've always done a great job of, you know, on the, the research tool is I, I know that CoStar sales reps are absolutely compensated by the utilization of the tool. So, and they're call, you know, they call our producers all the time. Hey, can I come in and, you know, do a lunch and learn or buy, you know, to, to get them to use the tool. And then, you know, they're investing a lot of resources on that. So, Maybe you can follow up on you know on a more complicated lender approach. Yeah, hundred percent. We have some of the reps in the room here. I think we could bring them up if you want. <laughs> um, no, uh, with ours, we are constantly touching base. We so we when we're selling these models uh, that are integrated with all of our information into these large institutions that are using it for regulatory reporting, 
uh, about 40% of my group's time is spent doing model validation work, uh, making sure that they're comfortable with it. We're working with them to better understand what the regulators are requiring out of them and what security requirements are. Um, and we're constantly working that back into the tool. I know we'll probably talk about Agile afterwards, but being able to push that back um, out into the tool. So it's super important with the type of um, uh, with the type of data and information that we're providing uh, to our clients that we're constantly in front of them and making sure that they're making use of all of it because we're always adding new information, new companies, new research uh, in there. So we're always trying to get them to see what the, what's available to them and keep that uh, retention number really high. Great, thank you. Let's pivot to um, sort of a, a topic I want to talk about is the technology and the borrower experience. So sort of the end user customer here is maybe to the group question is, um, you know, what do borrowers care about, you know, both short and long term? What do anybody want to start, Mark, maybe on the other? Oh, uh, well, uh, you know, I, I tend to think they, they at the, the the core, they want the best uh, possible rates and terms, right? But they can get the best possible rates and terms from any lender, right? Any any lender that can, uh, you know, work with Fannie, Freddie, HUD, and they, they, they're able to provide the, the same terms roughly. So what differentiates uh, one lender from another? I think it all comes down to experience. If you can deliver more insight and help them strategize about how to best pursue their investment thesis and uh, bolster that with knowledge of deals you've actually done in the markets that they're working in. Well, that's, that's really valuable. They're going to go to you for the rate in terms, but also for the expertise. Um, so, it, you know, it, if you're only, if you're all competing on the same rates and terms, the only thing that can differentiate one lender versus another is the ability to provide a better experience. It's smoother, it's easier, you get some expertise out of it and, and hone your strategy more. Uh, and so we, we put a lot of emphasis on using our data to deliver that sort of insight and that streamlined experience. Yeah, I'll, I'll add too that I think borrowers want to want to control want control. I mean, they really want to control their time, their costs. They want to go in and out of an app and not have to pick the phone up and call somebody for help or watch a YouTube video to use something. They just want to get their job done in the same amount of time every time because they try to plan their day um, you know, for, for different activities. So I, I think consistency, delightful experience, always works, always available is like critical for borrowers. So, sort of the same way we feel about the apps on our phone. You know, online banking has got to always be there for me. If all of a sudden it's 45 minutes rather than 15 minutes for me to pay bills, I'm frustrated. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the consumerization of technology in, yeah. into the business side is that everybody wants that same, you know, if me as a consumer, if I can go online to my bank, how, shouldn't I be able to see my mortgage payment or, yeah. you know, transact that way? So it's interesting. Um, Mark, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, there's even further, particularly in commercial lending, where there's often covenants and required financial documents. And it is, you talk about lack of standardization, how it's tracked within a bank, how those documents are received and how they're managed. It is uh, uh, from a borrower, particularly commercial borrower perspective, standardizing that and making sure that it's notices are sent in a timely way where they're not you know, three years after the loan's made asking you for three years worth of documents. And it happens. Uh, it, it just depends on the institution. 
Uh, and I think borrowers in that world want consistency. They'll certainly send you the stuff if you ask them in a timely way. But often what regulators will ding financial institutions are that lack of standardization and that drives back to borrower behavior and you can drive that borrower behavior if technology is tracking those things and sending out notices and reminders. I also think it depends on the, you know, the borrower itself is if the borrower is an institution, uh, institutional larger balance, they're, they're looking at different things than a borrower who's a, you know, dentist buying a small apartment or a triple net. Uh, that's more of a, you know, B to C transaction. And I know, you know, Mark Walker Dunlop, you have, you know, the work with the large institutions to finance their stuff, you're a big agency lender as well, but you also do small balance lending. So do you, Internally, are you looking at that borrower differently as the maybe the small balance borrower and the and the needs they need versus you know some of the largest institutions? Oh yeah, it's uh, it's entirely different uh, what what they're looking for and how they think about acquisitions and growing their portfolio versus the the larger clients. And we it, it's hard to get data in the the small end of the market, right? Because uh, it, it's not like Fannie Freddie data. That's that's publicly available and pretty easy to, to get and, and use. Um, at the small end of the market, I mean, we acquired a whole company, GeoFi, to, to help us um, dig in and, and build our database there and understand like, oh, these people, they're looking to do this particular thing or they're looking for this particular type of financing, kind of build out like a, a sponsor profile call them sponsor internally, but, uh, you know, a sponsor profile to explain um, what is their strategy based on their behavior and the data that we have on their transactions? How are they similar to other um, people in the market? Like, what? how would you group them together? The, these, these people have these attributes, so market to them in this way. It's a very different profile for the high end of the market versus the small end of the market. For sure. Um, so on, the, on, on that topic, maybe is... Um, what technologies are available today to address, you know, to help lenders address those borrower pain points, you know, whether it's a, a institution or institutional sponsor or, you know, maybe more of a private client sponsor? Uh, there are so many different platforms today. I almost feel like uh, real estate, because it's so, such fragmented ownership of real estate, I, I feel like the, the technology kind of reflects that. There's so many different products out there because there's so many different owners and so many different ways of doing things. I can think like uh, we've got Deal Cloud, Deal Path, Pro Deal. There's like a billion deal uh, management platforms out there. Uh, there there's so much, and it, it's kind of hard. And you, you know, you think of like um, BI things like Cherry is a, a making really good uh, inroads there and getting a lot of adoption. Uh, there's, uh, there's, what was it, Revolution RE. There's so many, so many different platforms. It's kind of hard to sift through it all and determine which ones are going to be right for, for your company. So when we evaluate, we kind of look at, uh, well, the, we have to do our InfoSec review, our IP and all that, uh, but we, we look at longevity too, right? Are, are they going to be around? Because we could invest in every startup that comes along, but a lot of them aren't going to be here in a few years. So we, we really, really need to know that they have staying power and that they can uh, integrate with our systems because we have built so much internal tech. They need robust APIs to be able to push and pull data from our internal applications.
So, uh, Mark, how have you maybe dealt with that friction borrower? Have you you see any you know magic bullets out there that can help that? We're we're primarily back end uh, dealing with the bank itself, but there are certainly processes and technologies. It goes back to this fragmentation, and it really to 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 lend on other Mark, what he said, is that it's such a fragmented industry that creating standardization for both borrowers and lenders is critical, but slow. And so you kind of have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. And there are certainly some things, I mean, even our company provides covenant tracking, which once implemented works pretty well, but it's back to that adoption piece is, is you know, if you, if you have it's a, it's a very, you know, 5,000 community banks and 4,000 credit unions and uh, untold number of lenders that are non-traditional. Getting them on a standardization technology throughout is, uh, it's monumental. And when you can take big bites of that and actually see that you've improved things like covenant tracking, a small thing in some ways, but ultimately translates to ROI because, you know, regulators are allowing you to lend more because your, uh, your loans are in order. You're passing loan review. So it's a, it's going to be an interesting next 10 years, the rapid change in technology over the last 10 years and how that's been able to push into banks is more than occurred in the previous 50 within banks. So the next 10 years are going to be really exciting to see what's going to solve these particular problems and what consolidations will occur to solve that in the technology side. Stephen, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, uh, I spent the last several years in the residential uh, mortgage tech industry and ended up building a company and ended up spending a year at Guaranteed Rate running their technology group. And, and they're further along in commercial lending. There's no question about it. They have the volumes to justify a lot of the investments to try to build so-called the digital, the digital mortgage. But it turns out uh, it's a really difficult task uh, because there's so many judgment decisions along the way. You know, should we underwrite? Should we give credit? It's not, it's not black and white. You can't kind of calculate some of this stuff. But nonetheless, when I, when I joined there, they were doing 5% of their uh, loans were touch, what's called touchless digital loans. And when I left, it was somewhere in the 30% range. Um, and, and we provided some of that boost in, that t in the technology side. I, I think the right solution is to chip away at the problem. Um, there are low-hanging fruit solutions today that actually provide uh, a stage, uh, and some of you guys mentioned some of those, you know, and it, we're a stage that is fully automated. Uh, I happen to think we're part of one of those, GoDocs, where you can go in and order documents and get them in seconds and, and, and integrate it downstream to, to, uh, to, your, to the rest of your platform. So I think you find those places where you can really drive, take a digital step, and then just keep going. I think you're right. I mean, one of the, from the bar, there's still a lot of friction in, in inefficiency and, in, you know, a real estate transaction, whether you're buying, selling, leasing, or financing. And so, you know, these, these solutions, even if it's the back office of the bank, if you can automate and make things more efficient, you, you reduce the friction and the cost. And that ultimately can, you know, pass down to the borrower that, you know, if the transaction costs are less, um, then, you can, you know, transact more maybe, right? So, I mean, if you just go back, look at, you know, 20 years ago where you had a stockbroker and it was cost a lot of money to trade a stock and it's not like they went away. They're just get paid differently in asset man and they're, they're making more money today than they did 20 years ago. Uh, and then addressing the residential side. I mean, it's one of the things I've always in, in the business that you're, I always look at the residential world because I, I feel like they're, you know, at least 10 to, 
you know, five to 10 years ahead of commercial and looking what's happening on the residential side and seeing, hey, you know, maybe that in 10 years, that's what it will look like to do a commercial transaction. I mean, I like most of the people who own houses, I've refinanced my house multiple times when interest rates were much lower. Uh, you know, I happened to do a transact when rates went down again, I refinanced and went to my, my great residential mortgage broker and I'm in the, I knew exactly what I do. It's like, no, 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 we don't. Here's the portal, you upload everything. And the, the on it, it was on my app and it was like, the experience was completely different than what it was just, you know, four or five years ago. And I, I, I think that in our industry, especially on the small balance side, that's gonna trickle down sooner and that borrowers are gonna sort of expect that you have that type of experience. And if you don't, they're, they're gonna wonder why, right? And yeah. maybe gravitate towards providers that have that uh, capability. So that's some of the things I look at yeah. And because we do a lot of small balance lending is, is that, you know, how is the borrower going to want to interact with our brokers? You know, they, they need us as, you know, advisors, but they also maybe don't want to just get an Excel file or get on, you know, instead they want a, a different experience. Um, so uh, let's see, maybe as we, we have 10 more minutes here, um, maybe sort of talk a little bit about maybe the role of agile development um, and the culture of the startups. I mean, it's interesting, you know, you came from a startup, Mark, and you know, now you're part of one of the larger service providers here is, you know, um, you know, what does, you know, agile development, a cultural startup in our space, how, how is it impacting maybe, you know, our transformation in the industry? Yeah, so when we came in, uh, Walker and Dunlop, I think, did a, a great job of making it kind of an island of innovation. We had 10 people, mostly developers, uh, and, and we came in and we just experimented using the, the data that we had. Uh, and some of the, the stuff was, uh, you know, more esoteric, like data science uh, experimentation, and a, a lot of it was interacting with the the community of people that we had, had come into and figuring out, digging into to their needs, but doing it in a, a very rapid way because we were segmented. So at that time we had, uh, we had everything on Google Cloud, right? Because it's very easy from a data science perspective to use, uh, secure, robust. Um, and we were able to, to spin up applications that if we paid a consultant, it would probably take like three years to build and we were able to do it in like less than a year continually and we did it like five times we launched internal applications continually had strong rollout strong adoption um, as you grow though now uh, now we've been part of the team so now there, there's uh, different things like the infosec team has built out a lot more than it was before so now there's there's more checks and balances and things have kind of slowed down a bit on the dev front it's more intentional less uh, experimentation uh, and so I think that's natural for, for any company as you grow, you, you start to slow down and be more uh, risk averse. Um, but if you can recreate that environment where you have kind of, not like a skunk works because we were very much integrated with the company and figuring out what their, their needs were, but if you can create an island of innovation where you're able to you know, push the envelope a bit, do, do more things without uh, too much red tape, uh, it, it's really, you, you can come out with a lot of innovation in a pretty short time and with, with not a, a very large team size either. 
Great. Um, Steve, do you have anything to maybe add if you're yeah. maybe some of the customers that you work with that look at it this way? Yeah, I mean, you know, Agile is basically a, a very collaborative uh, development process with, with customers. And I actually have a real good case study as the benefits of that. You know, we, when you work closely with customers, you ought to make sure, you're, you're certainly going to make uh, sure you're going to hit the mark in terms of what you deliver because you're getting the requirements in real time. You're making rapid releases of the product. So we have a customer today where, where they do about 500 loans with us, an average um, $4, million, $4 million loan value. And, um, and we work with them closely to build this solution. And today, they're saving somewhere, I think, I think they said about $2 million a year in legal fees by processing those documents. And about a week of time, each loan, in terms of closing time, just because we work so closely in an agile way to meet their requirements. And I, so I think the benefit is really huge if you do it well. John, is, are you, does CoStar do that, like Agile with, with maybe some of their customers to get the adoption? And Yeah, we're, we're absolutely Agile. I think we have about 700 software developers at this point and the whole organization runs Agile. So my, my group runs is sort of a, we're almost a startup within the larger organization. So as we push out these new products, uh, it's great, like you said, we were able to collaborate with the clients and internally, and we have about a three-week release cycle. Uh, so we can very quickly get new functionality uh, out there as the market might change or as clients need something, uh, fix bugs uh, very quickly, have everybody you know, as part of that collaborative uh, process. So yeah, while we're in a big organization, we're still able to react really, really quickly uh, to everything all the clients need. Yeah, and, and Agile isn't just for programmers and engineers. It can be for your internal workforce, your people. So I've used it effectively to try to, you know, if you're trying to get adoption, you know, the, the little things matter, right? And so if you have a big goal of, you know, we're using this tool to, you know, automate this process, whatever it is, the, the larger goal, but if there's little tiny things that bother end users, they're gonna go back to Excel and those other things. And so that, that agile where you can, you even work with a, you know, I've done a couple of CRM rollouts, which you don't want to start with the producers because they, you know, they're like, oh, my customer, it's my customer, it's not the company. But if you, if you work with the back office and processing people and you work through some easy wins, then all of a sudden they're like, oh, this isn't so bad. We can do the tool in it. And if you can quickly, you know, if they have an idea that's great and you can implement it in, you know, two or three days and they see it, they're like, oh, wow, this is, this is wonderful versus feeling like it. It falls on deaf ears. So we oh, have, great. Well, we'll give five minutes back to everybody. I appreciate your time um, and have a wonderful conference.